hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. From the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, we welcome you to the Disaster Discussions podcast, where we explore the intersection of hazards and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody. I want to thank you so much for uh, being with us on this episode of our podcast, as well as the other episodes where you've joined us. We've been around since the fall, and you folks have been finding us, and so we're so grateful. You can grab us on Amazon, Apple, Google, and Spotify. You can also Find us on ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast. And you folks have been doing just that on the audio side and the video side. And we are so grateful to you. And we hope that you'll continue to be with us on this podcast. We believe in the work we're doing here. And by tuning into this podcast, you're helping us educate so many people across this country and around the world. And for that, we are most grateful. So please keep doing that if you would. We certainly do appreciate it. Now, typically on this podcast, I try to offer up some coherent introduction to set up the episode, and then I'll turn to the person who shows up on the screen, and then we begin our conversation via technology. But I don't have to do that today. All I've got to do is turn to my right and say hello to Steve Hawks, who is the new director of Wildfire Policy right here at IBHS. We're going to talk about Steve's decades of experience in the wildfire space and the work he is doing here at IBHS. Steve, I cannot thank you enough, sir, for being with us here on the Disaster Discussions podcast. Thanks, Armand, and I'm uh, really happy to be joining the IBHS team. We are excited to have you. We're going to talk about the work that you'll be doing with us and have been doing with us, actually, here at IBHS in just a little while. But I want to go back. You're a native Californian, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, but I want to go back to Steve Hawks, the youngster. And uh, you're a bit of an outdoorsman, and when you grew up, you uh, you were a multi-sports star, right? I don't know about a star, <laughs> but yes, I, I played uh, basketball, baseball, football. Now, now I want to let, let's touch on baseball because Ian Jamanko, who is our uh, senior director for standards and data analytics, he was a pitcher. Now, 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 were you a pitcher? Were you a catcher? Were you an uh, outfield, infield? What were you doing? Pitcher and shortstop. Pitcher. So what, what was your go-to? Slider, fastball? Uh, slider, yep. Slider, that okay. That was my best pitch. Now, did you pattern <laughs> that after someone or, or what? Um, 
No, I don't think so. Okay. I just tried to throw it with as much break as I could get. Now, now, fair enough. Now, our CEO, Roy Wright, is a Dodgers fan. Oh, Did no. you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> I take it you're a Giants fan. I am then. a Giants fan. Now, yeah. I'm a Braves fan. So okay. we have our issues with the Dodgers, but we have the most, well, we have a, a World Series within the last couple of years. So yeah. I'm content for the, for the moment. It, it had been a long time. <laughs> but um, that's Steve Hawks, the baseball player. And we're also interested in Steve Hawks, the firefighter and uh, fire researcher and director of wildfire policy. And we've got all of them here in one. So we're really grateful to have you with us and we're grateful yeah. to have you on the team. Awesome, thank you. I'm, again, really happy to be here. So let's go back to what motivated you in California to really become involved with studying and, and finding fires? Yeah, it really goes back to um, growing up in uh, Paradise, California, where I'm from. And my dad worked for the California Department of Forestry, known now as CAL FIRE, but back then CDF. And um, spending some time at the fire station, riding on the back of the fire engine on a few occasions, uh, burning pine needles and leaves in our backyard and him teaching me and my brother about uh, fire behavior and and so forth. That really got my interest in the fire service and uh, emergency response and kind of led to my career with CAL FIRE. We're going to talk about that as well in a moment. But uh, do you remember your, your earliest memory of uh, maybe being at be, being at the fire station with your dad? Or like, do you have any memories of that? Yeah, we used to go to the fire station um, up above Paradise in Sterling City on Father's Day and always on a Sunday. And we'd spend Father's Day up there and have dinner with the, my dad and, and the firefighters at the dinner table. And I always thought that was a really cool you know, thing at the time uh, to be able to spend some time at the fire station. Working in the fire service space, it's not just a hobby for you. It's more of a calling, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just the, the tremendous amount of time that I've had around this uh, has really been all my life. Um, with my dad being in the fire service and then me uh, starting with Cal Fire when I was 18 years old as a seasonal firefighter and in the field responding to emergencies and working my way up through the department. Um, it's, it's really something that uh, has been a tremendously rewarding career uh, to work in that field and, and help people prepare for fires and other emergencies. And then when they happen to respond and help mitigate those and get them back on their feet and try and get back to some sense of normalcy. Indeed. You spent quite a, uh, quite a few years at Cal Fire. Can you tell us everything that you did at Cal Fire? I know that uh, you had an extensive uh, background uh, in Cal at Cal Fire. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, it was a 30 year career. Um, I retired in December and uh, I spent the first uh, about 24 years in the field um, on fire engines responding as a firefighter worked my way up uh, through battalion chief um, and uh, spent uh, 13 years also on incident management teams uh, with the department um, going to major wildland fires throughout the state of California and managing them. Um, and then the last six years, I made a little bit of a career shift from being in the field as a firefighter to uh, working for the office of the state fire marshal, a division underneath Cal Fire. And we focus on uh, prevention measures within the office, but the particular division that I worked in was focused on wildfires and community 
uh, preparedness. What was that transition like for you going from the field? It was different. Um, you know, spending so much time in the field, responding to calls, and then taking a step back and looking at the larger picture of what's happening in California uh, for wildfire preparedness. It so, so happens that it kind of coincided my career shift with the increase in the size and severity of wildfires that we had been experiencing. And so taking the programs that were already established and continuing to build them out. Um, and then because of the uh, wildfires, we began to uh, realized that we needed to do more things. And so we developed out some new programs and um, got them in place and they're making a difference, but there's more that we need to do. And these wildfires are uh, burning with such intensity and so destructive, we're a little bit behind the power curve in some senses of, of emergency preparedness. I'd like for you, Steve, to touch on the fact that this is not just important work that we're doing, but, but we're serving other people. And what's the significance of that for you? Yeah, it's, it's given back to the community, um, helping them prepare so that they don't have to go through uh, a loss of their home or a loss of a loved one. Um, and so that, that, you know, when a wildfire happens and it's inevitable that it's going to happen um, in, in California in particular, um, that it doesn't have to lead to the destruction of their home and uh, they can get through the fire and get back to a more sense of normalcy in their life. Um, they don't have to be destructive wildfires. Right. Let's go back to 1991 and the Oakland firestorm. Tell me about what that experience was for you as a native California and someone who's been in this space for so many years and what changes took place as a result of that? Yeah, that was um, a, a fire that really um, brought about a lot of destruction to a local community, the, the community of the city of Oakland and Oakland, Berkeley Hills. Um, and it was on a national scale. I mean, we've had a lot of fires over the years previous to 1991 that burned through some communities and caused some destruction and some of them fairly destructive. But that one in particular uh, at the time was the most destructive wildfire. Over 2,900 structures mm. uh, lost or damaged in the fire. and um, it really uh, showed that, you know, communities can be really vulnerable to these wildfires and it doesn't have to be uh, just a wildfire catching each individual structure on fire. In that particular fire, we saw a lot of structure to structure ignition. Um, and especially with the significant winds that were blowing during that. And just so happened that it was on a weekend uh, when the 49ers were playing nearby and, and it was really nationally televised as a pretty uh, big event like it was. Mm -hmm. And and so it really brought about the awareness uh, that communities can be really vulnerable to wildfire. Yeah. You uh, recently spent some time with two of our chiefs here at IBHS, Dr. Ann Cope and Alistair Watt. Can you share some of the things that you, you guys discussed during those conversations and those meetings? Yes. Uh, we were up in Paradise um, a couple weeks back uh, for the first ever newly built and recognized wildfire prepared home plus designation. Um, and so we really got to see uh, this was a home that was destroyed during the, the campfire and was newly rebuilt and how um, a home can rebuilt to a more resilient standard that is going to be able to better withstand a future wildfire because Paradise 
has experienced a significant event and you know history can repeat itself that it may happen again at some point in the future um, so just uh, talking about uh, the mitigation measures that the homeowner implemented uh, to bring about this uh, more prepared state for the home um, and the, it's sometimes the little things that make uh, a big difference as well having a class a roof and non-combustible siding very important but also making sure that that zero to five foot zone is nothing combustible in that zone that the gutters are cleared of vegetation sometimes the little things really make a big difference as well you know it's it's interesting because when we were out in paradise california we're going to uh, talk about that a little bit more in a moment everybody knows about the paradise campfire of 2018 and we went out there to launch our wildfire prepared home designation back in june of, of 2022 um, very meaningful important day for us you were there i was also mm -hmm. there and um, during that time roy riot our ceo spoke very personally about what that fire meant to him because he's from the area and so are you as you've established can you take us back to that time what your memories are what your feelings were then uh post and even during uh, the events of that time period. Yeah, and even le leading up, Paradise was a great place to grow up. It still is a great place to live, and it'll get back to you know normal over time. But um, if you really like the outdoors, that was a great place to live, and and so it was great for our family growing up. Uh, during when the event happened, um, it was I heard about it, and it was out and started out in the Polga area, which is a fair distance from Paradise, and. So at the time I was thinking, ah, it's, you know, paradise is okay for now, but as the events uh, begin to unfold and reports came that it's gone through Concow area and then it's starting to get into paradise, it really is like, okay, this is serious. Um, I called my brother um, who worked for Cal Fire at the time and um, he was responding up into the town to, to work on the fire. And, and he said he didn't have time to talk understandably. Mm -hmm. um, and then I called my parents and um, talked to my dad and both my dad and mom were in the process of evacuating out of the town. Um, so I decided that it was probably best that I respond up to Paradise as well and, and help at least with the evacuation, getting people out of harm's way. That's our biggest concern is life safety. Um, and I, I was able to get up into Paradise around noon, um, and it's, which is pretty close to the tail end of the evacuation and saw some of the challenges that happened with the evacuation power lines across the roadway, power poles across the roadway blocking what uh, would be an evacuation route, um, a car becoming high centered on a power pole. And I assisted with getting that car off of that and back on their way to evacuation. Just the significant uh, fire behavior that was right on the roadway um, and smoky conditions that really hindered people's ability to get out of town quickly. Um, and even though it was the mid middle of the day, it was really dark with the plume of the smoke column laying over the town of Paradise and the power being out. Um, it was surreal being in town and watching the event unfold. When we were there, um... We talked with the mayor and, and some of the other leaders of the town, and, and they used the term like post-apocalyptic. It was just uh, impossible to fathom 
paradise being in such a state. There was no paradise in paradise that day. For you, because you have such an emotional tie to the area, how do you as a firefighter and one who studies and you've given your life to the fire service space, how do you find that balance between, I've got work to do as a firefighter, but this is a very real and personal loss for me. Yeah, I, that one um, is a significant event for me because it happened in the town that I grew up in. Over the years of being a firefighter, um, you know, you just kind of try to block out the what you see, the destruction and and so forth. And it's, it's, it's a job that you have and you go and do the job to the, your best of your ability. But that one was different for me um, with uh, my childhood home being destroyed. My parents were still living in the home at the time and um, seeing the town go through what it did. Um, when I was up in paradise for the few hours on the first day of the fire, I tried to block all that out and just do my job. Um, after that, it became a little more, you know, it was a little harder to do um, as I stayed um, and assisted with the damage inspection process of documenting all the buildings that were damaged and destroyed in the fire um, and helping my parents get through the loss of their home. So yeah, it, it, it is um, a fire that probably the only fire in my career that I took personally. Yeah. What was that inspection process like for you? What did that in entail? It's a, a process that we've developed out over time. And um, so we uh, at Cal Fire call a team of specialized uh, folks out to manage the inspection process. And they organize the staff that come to do um, the inspections into teams of two. They identify little geographic areas within the fire perimeter for them to concentrate on each team. And then each morning they go out with a field-based mobile app and go structure to structure and document whether it was damaged, destroyed. They document features about the structure to the best of their ability if the house was destroyed. What was the roofing material? What was the siding material? What were the vents made out of and, and so forth? And, um, and there's two folders. One is to document the number of structures damaged and destroyed for historical purposes for the fire. But the, uh, the second goal, um, particularly with the Office of the State Fire Marshal, was to learn uh, from these events and see what building materials are making a difference. And in California, um, the State Fire Marshal um, promulgates the uh, California Building Code, Chapter 7A, uh, one of the most stringent building standards for building in wildfire prone areas. And so we analyze the data and then compare it to chapter 7A and see if there's any changes that we can make to chapter 7A to, to strengthen the code. The work, well, let me back up. It's unfortunate that it takes disasters like paradise to happen to get the change that is sort of needed and necessary to take place. As one who has the the real experience of fighting the fires, as well as sort of taking the 20,000 foot view and studying how we can mitigate. What is that process like for you? What are, your, what, what are your emotions like when you sort of look at what happens in real time? But then there's this other part of you, I would imagine that is like, I wish it didn't have to take this in order for us to realize that we can do better. Yeah, we know, you know there's certain measures that can be taken that make a big difference in the outcome of structures or in people surviving these fires. And by going to them over time, um, 
you'd really like to see those standards be put in place in a larger, across a larger area of California, the, the, even the, the US, um, because we know they make a difference. And if they're in place and working and being utilized, that there's a higher likelihood of homes um, surviving wildfires. But when they're not in place and not utilized, that's when we see the destruction like we have been seeing. Tell me about some of the tangible, not tangible, but some of the concrete science that we have gathered from, from the Oakland firestorm, from Paradise. Let's talk about some of the real things that are being done. And we're gonna come to your work here at IVHS in a moment. But what's, what, what's the real science that people can sort of wrap their minds around relative to how to mitigate, how to make sure that we're being resilient in the face of wildfire? Yeah, and you nailed it with the, um, the work that's being done here at IBHS. And, and uh, we were able to do a number of um, post-fire uh, analysis as well to kind of field validate the science, what the science is showing. And a lot of uh, what we've learned um, uh, over the years uh, from both research and field verification is that the really the exterior components are the most critical components of the house and its immediate surroundings. Um, so uh, the class, yeah, class A roof yes. materials, keeping your gutters clear, uh, dual pane windows with tempered glass, um, uh, vent screens with metal mesh with uh, you know less than an eighth of an inch uh, gaps between the mesh, um, the defensible space surrounding the home, in, in particular, the zero to five feet immediately surrounding the home is the most critical and needs the most stringent fuel reduction uh, in order to give the best chance, uh, the home a best chance of surviving. Let's go back to June again and talk about when we launched Wildfire Prepared Home at Casey Taylor's home in Paradise, California. You were there and I was, I was there. We talked about that. Um, what, what were your observations of that day? What do you remember? I remember being there and feeling like this is such an important day, not just in the history of IBHS, but for the city of Paradise, for the town of Paradise, and for the state of California. I remember feeling the enormity, the significance yeah. of the work we were doing. And it's one of the most memorable days of my time here at IBHS. How did you see it? Yeah, very similar. Um, you know, the town had just gone through a significant event with um, the campfire and over 90% of the structures within the town were either damaged and destroyed and the town's trying to rebuild back to what it was beforehand. And uh, instead of, you know, throwing up their hands and saying, well, you know, we live in a wildfire prone area that just experienced a significant event. We're not going to do, we can't, we're powerless. We're not going to do anything. No there's things that we can do and we can build back better and we can build back stronger and more resilient. And that's what that kind of signified to me is that that resilience that was built into that structure of Casey's house um, allows her to, to really feel comfortable of moving back into paradise and, and getting back on her feet and moving forward. It was truly a, a remarkable day and, and we had been there, we were there for a couple of days and, and I just remember as I was even in the town, we went to went to a restaurant uh, within uh, the, within the town, and we went to another restaurant in Chico, which is close by. You know all of this because you're from there. <laughs> but um, I remember feeling like, honestly, I remember feeling like I was kind of home. 
because it reminded me of the small sort of close-knit family atmosphere kind of community that I come from. And I, I felt almost this obligation to, to want to guard it and to want to protect it. Do you have any sort of response? Like, have you ever felt that like, thinking about your home, thinking about paradise and all that it represents? Is, am I alone in that? Or did no. you sort of feel what I'm, what I'm feeling on that? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, that's where I grew up. And that's um, the town I have a lot of memories in. And, you know, I never wanted to see that happen to the town or any town, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that that town, you could take Town of Paradise and rename it, with, and, and that could be any any town basically throughout California and many places throughout the, the country um, that are in wildfire-prone areas. It just happened to be in Paradise. Right. You are the director of wildfire policy here at IVHS, and we're glad about that. And uh, a significant part of your work is the Wildfire Prepared Home Program. We've talked about it a little bit, but I want to give you an opportunity to uh, really uh, dive in here. Let's have a feast, uh, a wildfire prepared home feast, and I'll let you, I'll let you get the first bite. Okay. Um, yeah, so wildfire prepared home is, um, has two levels, and a base level and a plus level. And the base level um, is uh, Class A roof, vent screens with a screen less than an eighth of an inch, um, six-inch non-combustible zone around the base of the house at grade level, and that first uh, zero to five feet around the structure of no combustibles. So critical when we're talking about ember production because in every wildfire across um, this the country and the world, there's always going to be embers that are produced by the fire that are lofted into the air and cast down wind. And if they land next to the structure or on the structure and find something that's flammable, ignite that on fire, then that is what leads to structure loss in many instances. It's been proven that uh, embers are the leading cause of most structure loss in a wildfire. Uh, then in the plus level, it switches to, to look at uh, the vulnerability of a house from a direct flame and radiant heat perspective. And so it's looking at the siding and the windows and um, the other exterior components of the structure that are really vulnerable to um, heat and ember or heat and uh, uh, radiant heat and direct flame. Gotcha. What are some of the other things you'll, you'll be working on uh, as director of wildfire policy? Uh, I, I, I joked with you earlier, but in baseball, we talk about a five-tool player. And when it comes to uh, wildfire work, you're, you're kind of a five-tool uh, player for IBHS. Can you share some of the other things you're, you're, you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, some of the other things besides wildfire prepared home is, is to help um, build out the wildfire prepared community designation and then get that implemented across the, the state, uh, at least to start with. And then um, also working on uh, helping to uh, develop out um, the International WUI Code and a new um, initiative that the International Code Council is working on, ICC 605 um, uh, standards. And then um, also uh, working to develop a um, basically a standard that local jurisdictions can implement at the local level based off of the wildfire prepared home. Um, so it's a um, basically a code that they could uh, adopt um, through local ordinance. Tell me about the benefit that you have, the advantage you have, because 
so many within the state of California are familiar with you from your years of work uh, in so many different areas at Cal Fire. And you brought so much of that experience over with you here to IBHS. That's got to give you an advantage in being able to talk to the right people and connect the right dots here at IBHS as our director of wildfire policy. Yeah, absolutely. I've made a lot of contacts over the years in California from federal government entities, other state agencies, local entities. I sat on the board of um, uh, the board for the California Fire Safe Council uh, for about four years. Um, I've attended many uh, fire prevention uh, meetings across the, the state. Um, so I ha do have a lot of contacts and inroads um, that can help uh, with um, IBHS's uh, wildfire prepared home and community and other adventures in California. So a quick story. Uh, when I was growing up, I told you I grew up in a small town and uh, I went to uh, Clio Elementary Middle School. The elementary and middle schools were together because a small town. <laughs> and uh, I remember growing up and if I got in trouble, my uncle who worked at the school would know. My parents would definitely know. The Sunday school teachers would know. The other folks who coaches would know, little league teams and, and everybody would know. And they would say, it was a, that Brody boy. I heard from so-and-so that you got in trouble. And so it became the responsibility of so many different people to help keep me in line. There was this system in place to make sure that Armand Brody was a good boy. And when I think about the work we're doing here relative to wildfire, it's a system, right? It's not just one person. It takes a village. It takes a collective effort from so many different groups of people. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many entities uh, working in the wildfire space to prepare communities and in our forests and, and so forth. So, um, you know, getting us all marching in the same direction with the same messaging um, that's standardized that people can understand is so critical. So, um, in, in some of my roles with CAL FIRE, I had the uh, ability to work with so many different entities. I was also one of the co-chairs of the, of the uh, Wildfire and Forest Resilience Task Force in uh, California um, that centered around communities. So we worked with a lot of entities to implement 32 key action items um, to help build you know, resilience of these communities across California, both for existing communities and new developed communities. So getting everyone together with common messaging is so critical. Yeah, let's talk about that common messaging for a moment because uh, as a communicator myself, I know the importance of making sure that everybody's singing the same song. How much progress have we made in that area and what else can be done to make sure that we're all in step with each other? Yeah, it's um, continuing to work together to get to to know each other and feel comfortable with working e with each other and knowing what each other's strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and then developing that common messaging. Um, you know, you go back five, 10 years and retrofitting of structures wasn't nearly as talked about as it is today. And all the different components that that entails to, to bring about resiliency on a structure. Um, and I think that a lot of progress has been made on on uh, messaging related to retrofitting of structures and what's important and what's maybe not as important. Um, and then when you combine that with defensible space, those are the two 
most critical components for uh, a home survivability from a wildfire. And so getting all of us on the same page, talking about that has been a really big task, but I think we're making progress and, and doing really well at it. I'm really encouraged because one of the things that really jumps out to me working here at IBHS is, is we appreciate the partnership aspect of what we do. We understand that although we are out here uh, sort of in this small town with all this land so that we can burn up stuff and <laughs> blow up things and all of that, we understand that there's so many people who are helping us with the work. And that, I, I feel that is so critical to what we're doing here. Can you touch on that just a little bit more and, and just to really help us understand the importance of all of us coming together for the good of science and for the good of resilience? Yeah, as I mentioned, there's a lot of entities working in this space. And um, it, it, if we don't have the contacts with all these different entities, we could be all working on very similar things um, and maybe marching down different roads. but. When we're together, then we can feel each other out of what we're each working on and, and come to, like, you work on this, we'll work on this, we'll come together, we'll get on the same page, we'll march forward in the same direction with a common message. It's just so critical that we're doing that. Tell me about the relationship uh, with your work, even now and as well as previously at CAL FIRE. Uh, tell me about the relationship between your work and, and the insurance industry and the conversations that are that have been had and that are being had and that will be had in that space. Yeah, um, so first thing is getting structures more resilient so that we stop having the, the number of losses that we have been having. And I think that's what Wildfire Prepared Home and, and the PLUS designation does. Um, so first off, it gives the homeowner the uh, a more resilient structure to withstand wildfire and it should give them the peace of mind that they've done things that they can do to prepare for wildfire and then that should translate to a more resilient home that is more insurable so availability and affordability of insurance um, should come with that and when you can combine those together that's that's a significant benefit for uh, property owners and the insurance industry can you speak, Steve, to those who maybe still don't see the need to apply the science that is coming out of IBHS? What do we say to them? How do we message? How do we communicate to those who may be a little slow to move and act based on uh, all the work that's coming out of IBHS? What's our message to them? So public education is an ongoing uh, thing that needs to be done all the time is you have people coming into wildland areas that may not have lived there before. And so continuing to show that message that living in wildfire prone areas, you have hazards that you need to deal with. And there are measures that you can take to do that. You're not powerless. Creating good defensible space, building a home that if you're building new to the current standard or retrofitting an existing home that was built prior to the standard bringing it up to the standard. Those are all key components that you can do. And then putting that message out across all the different mediums that are out there, uh, social media, websites, hold, holding uh, town halls, um, like, like uh, meeting people you know, where they're at. Yeah. So however they can uh, best receive the message, we need to be thinking about you know, getting that out there through that, that uh, avenue. 
The importance of education. You cannot overlook it when it comes to building resilience. Absolutely. What kind of conversations um, have you had recently with, uh, with Dr. Ann Cope, our chief engineer, uh, about, about Prepared Home and, and sort of about the vision of, of where we're going forward here with this research? Yeah, it's to continue to um, conduct research um, on all aspects of the home. We know a lot of things. We know a lot of things that are working, but there's still some things out there that need to be um, defined, like uh, structure separation is one of the experiments that's going on uh, here at IVHS. Uh, trying to define it, at what separation distances does that radiant heat and direct flame contact not going to cause the um, other house to ignite. Um, so just how we can further the research to increase our knowledge and um, mitigations that matter. Um, and then how we can make refinements based on that to the current um, standards that are in place for wildfire prepared home. Can you just help uh, our audience understand, and I'm sure so many do already, when you use terms like radiant heat and direct flame contact, I think it's important for people to understand that these are not just sciencey terms, right? That they're not just found in books and mm -hmm. coming from the, the, the mouths of people like Steve Hawks, but this is real world impact. Like this is what's really happening. This is really what's contributing to some of the destruction that we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, embers, as I mentioned earlier, um, blow down wind. And if they land on something that's combustible and they burn with enough heat for long enough, then they can ignite that on fire. Um, that's demonstrated here in the lab. And we've seen that on many occasions out in the field. Radiant heat, um, something that's flammable, that's on fire, burning close enough to the house for long enough in duration, could transfer that heat through the air to that combustible item and, and if it's burnt long enough and that heats up to the right temperature, it could start on fire. And then direct flame contact, you know, just that flame reaching out and touching a combustible item could transfer that heat to that item and, and start it on fire. And, and CAL FIRE, as I mentioned, um, I managed the damage inspection program for a bit. And we know um, from our data that 90% um, or greater, a little bit greater than 90% of the structures that start on fire will be completely destroyed. So uh, the next category of affected is like um, cosmetic damage to the structure, non-structural damage. And that's about ranges into four to five percent. Um, so if the firefighters can get to a structure that just ignited on say a deck or something, and they can put it out right away, then they can save the home. But if the fire gets well established on a home, then there's very little chance that firefighters are going to be able to make a difference. Hmm. But we know we are making uh, a difference in California and a difference a across the West Coast with, with Prepared Home and with all the work that good people like you are doing. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us uh, before we wrap up here, Steve? I think just summarize that, um, you know, we're not powerless to do anything against wildfire. There are mitigations that matter that we know the science has proven that they work. We've seen them um, after a fire comes through and we've seen structures that are built to a code uh, withstand the fire better than those that aren't. Um, and so you're not powerless, take action. Learn about um, wildfire and the threats from wildfire and what actions that you can take and then take that next step, actually do that work. And, and then you'll find 
that you know once you've done the work um, that uh, you'll be able to uh, have a better chance of surviving a wildfire and hopefully that translates to more affordability of insurance and, and do things like follow IBH, IBHS on Twitter and check out yeah, our wildfire. That's a great way to uh, <laughs> find out the latest of what's going on, for sure. And, and, and check out Wildfire Prepared Home, our site, and check out disastersafety.org, and check out all of the resources that we have available online so that we are informed because a, a, a consistent theme in every conversation that I've had to this point, every disaster discussion is education, education, education. People don't know what they don't know. And we have to be, it, the empowerment is in the education. It, people knowing better gives them the empowerment, gives them uh, the, the fortitude to do better. And I think that's important. Absolutely, yeah. Steve Hawks is the director of Wildfire Policy. And you are a wonderful guest. We're so grateful to have you with us. We know you're a busy, busy man. You've got a lot going on. And, uh, as a Californian, we know that uh, you're three hours behind us and that you'll be getting back to California pretty soon. But you took a little time to stop by Richburg, South Carolina to speak with us here at IBHS, and we are better for it. Thanks for being here, and we appreciate you being on our team. Thanks, Herman. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks, folks. I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Disaster Discussions podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast and IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at IBHS underscore org, Facebook at facebook.com slash IBHS org and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.